You're listening to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast on the Medics Academy Network. Welcome back to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast with myself and Walker. In this episode, I'm speaking with Ash Vassareddy on pelvic trauma. So what I wanted to do is look at and examine the types of pelvic injury, the prevalence, and indeed some of the challenges of pelvic trauma. So what we wanted to also do is look at why it's such a critical injury to treat in the pre-hospital phase of care. So Ash is a fellowship trained orthopedic trauma surgeon specializing in the management of complex upper limb, lower limb, pelvic and acetabular fractures. So he works at King's College Hospital, major trauma center in London, and he's also completed his specialist orthopedic trauma training at the Royal London Hospital in Whitechapel. So in addition to that, Ash has completed traveling fellowships at various sites across the world, including Boston Shock Trauma Center in Baltimore and indeed Harborview Medical Center in Seattle. So he's got extensive experience in pre-hospital care and indeed in intensive care and anesthesia. He is also a consultant at Essex and Hearts Air Ambulance and the research lead. Welcome to the podcast, Ash. Welcome, Erin. Thanks very much for the invite. Ash, if I could just get you to start with maybe speaking to why pelvic fractures are such a time-critical injury in the pre-hospital phase of care. Pelvic trauma, uh, pelvic injuries in general, are time-critical because they're a massive source of bleeding and one of the many sources alongside solid organ injury, chest trauma and extremity injuries that can lead to massive blood loss. And hence, that's the predominant reason of why they are time critical. And so just looking at the statistics and the, the prevalence of pelvic trauma in, in the UK, and maybe from your anecdotal experience from the trauma network in London, could you speak to, because you've got a foot in both camps, you, you both work in a major trauma center uh, as an orthopedic surgeon, and indeed you fly as a consultant in pre-sport care. Could you, could you maybe speak to the prevalence from your anecdotal experience? No, so it's interesting. So yes, I have a foot in two separate camps and I see them at different points in their timeline and their patient journey. And in terms of how often they occur, I it's they occur infrequently on my clinical shifts. So every EHAT uh, and uh, air ambulance clinical shift I do, I'm not necessarily seeing a pelvic fracture. But every day I'm at King's College Hospital, there is at least one pelvic fracture coming in. Whether they're hemodynamically stable or hemodynamically unstable is a slightly separate point uh, because that because the severity of pelvic fracture is not always related to hemodynamic instability. We can discuss that later. Uh, but generally, we're seeing a pelvic fracture pretty much every day now. Even if it's not on site, we're getting external referrals. They're increasing in frequency, especially amongst the elderly. I think diagnostics are getting better in all the trauma units, so in the district general hospitals as well. So that referral number is going up. Uh, and actually, the in numbers of intervention are also going up. So just even speaking from my experience at King's, I could, I, when I first started at King's as a consultant back in 2018, we were probably fixing around 90 pelvic nastabular fractures a year, which would have been a good number. We're easily hitting 130 a year now without, like, without breaking that much of a sweat. Uh, and, and it can become quite difficult to manage the volume. And so just 
over the last week, I can already tell you we've had some pretty severe pelvic and acetabular fractures. So I'll just group those things together. They're not obviously necessarily the same, but those you uh, those fractures together. And we've been doing pretty much a, a pelvis or acetabular fracture operation almost every day. So Ash, just looking at the uh, fractures, could you maybe speak to the main types of pelvic fracture? Uh, and indeed how they're classified, just to sort of help principal clinicians understand sort of the main classifications. Yeah. There, uh, as with anything, there's a ton of classification systems. So one, you really need to know, why do you want to use a classification system? So classification systems can be useful for research purposes. So you can group things together. So then when you're studying them, you're studying and comparing apples with apples and you know oranges with oranges. The other reason you can use classification systems is to help guide treatment or you can use classification systems to help guide outcomes and prognosis for patients. And obviously, ideally, a classification system should be perfect for all of these different measures. They're usually not. The two commonest ones that most people use are the tile classification. Uh, so that I think I, I suspect orthopedic surgeons have probably heard more of that than other specialties and that looks at something and defines fractures are either being unstable partially stable or stable and so it's a very good classification system to guide treatment so you obviously for stable fractures leave them alone let them heal on their own and for partially unstable fractures or uns or fully unstable fractures then you just treat them operatively the commonest one that everyone uses, and probably the one I'll spend a few minutes talking about now, is the Young-Burgess classification. So this is one that splits it into lateral compression, anterior-posterior, vertical shear, and the combined mechanism. Okay, So in lieu of an actual pelvic bone, I'll just use my fingers. So you have obviously your polo mint is how you can regard the pelvis as a ring, difficult to break in just one place. So your lateral compression is typically, mechanism would be, someone falling from height and landing on their side, or someone driving their car and getting T-bone from the side, okay? And if you just go from, uh, there's a range of severities that goes from type one to two to three, and it just gets more severe. And in type one fractures, you typically have a injury to the sacrum with or without a fracture to the pubic ramus. You can sometimes have a pubic ramus fracture without any sacral fracture as well. So that's typically type one. Predominantly, most people regard that as a stable injury. Some may need operative treatment, vast majority do not. When you go to type two and type three, so these are more severe injuries, more energy in the mechanism. And in type two fractures, you get, what, uh, you get an injury through the ileum itself, leaving behind this crescent fragment of ileum that's still attached to the sacrum. And you may still have your anterior ring fractures in the pubic ramus, et cetera. And then in your LC3, so your type three fracture is when effectively you get a fracture on one side where it's compressed in and you get your sacral fracture or your ileum fracture. And then it comes in so much, it open books the other side and pushes the other side away and you get an open book fracture on the other side. And that open book relates to AP anterior posterior compression forces. So this is typically a most cyclist sitting, having a frontal impact and the pelvic, uh, sorry, the petrol tank is the thing that injures the front of his pelvis. So it injures the front of the pelvis and you get initially some in type one injuries, a little bit of opening on the front of the pubic symphysis, typically stable. Most people wouldn't operate on that. In type two fractures, you get 
diastasis, that's when the front, the pubic symphysis is fully open, and you get some widening of the sacroiliac joint at the back. And in type 3 is when that widening of the uh, sacroiliac joint at the back goes all the way from the anterior part of that joint all the way to the posterior part of that joint. As you can imagine, when you go from LC1 to 3 or APC1 to 3, all the bits in the middle of the ring, so all your blood vessels, your arteries, your veins, your capillaries, all your organs, your bladder, bowel, reproductive organs, uh, can all get damaged due to that mechanism of full injury and the energy trans you know, transferring across that region. And that's why you can have massive blood loss with more severe injuries. In your vertical shear, someone typically lands and falls from a height, landing preferentially on one leg more than the other. And so effectively that vertical force as they land just gets transferred up one hemipelvis and they effectively shear each other off. That's typically associated with other fractures like calcaneus fractures, tibial plateau, you know, femoral fractures, either proximally or distally, and then lumbar spine fractures as well. And then you can get this combined mechanism where anything and everything happens uh, just because of such severe energy. And so, you know, if nothing really fits a typical pattern, sometimes people just describe it as combined. The most lethal one, most people would agree, would actually be the LC3 pattern, that one where it closes in on one side and opens out the other side. And that gives you a typically a windswept deformity, which means that if you were to see someone on the roadside, they effectively would have one leg internally rotated and the other leg externally rotated. So effectively windswept like so. The frog leg position that most people recognize for APC three fractures when both legs are externally rotated. Again, lethal, but again, as I say, you know, there's small nuances between the two. Um, there is another injury which is not really classified anywhere, and our understanding of it is only becoming better over these last five to ten years. And that's something called spinopelvic dissociation. So the mechanism is hugely variable. It's typically a landing from uh, height, uh, from height, but it can happen just with high energy injuries when a car hits a pedestrian, for instance, and there's no kind of fall from height. And that is where you get kind of vertical fracture lines going down the sacrum, but they're connected with this horizontal fracture line going through the sacrum. And effectively, the pelvis is now dissociated from the rest of the spine. And so very weirdly, if you were to look on a lateral CT and look at the sacrum, which would normally be curved, it suddenly becomes very kyphotic because there's a break like that across it. And the whole thing looks like this. When the thing looks like this, it's crushed the, the sacral canal with all the sacral nerve roots. And typically, all, a lot of these patients have bowel and bladder incontinence and significant weakness in their lower extremities. And so uh, it's a very difficult problem to manage. It's actually a much more recognized recently. Not entirely sure why. I think just, you know, the, the diagnostic, diagnostics and understanding of pelvic fractures getting better and better. And I think probably the energy of injuries is also more recently getting worse and worse. Ash, listen, just looking at, I was going to ask this quite later, but actually I'll bring it forward because I'm hugely interested in the application of pelvic binders. And as you were saying around the LC3 or indeed LC2 fractures, the lateral compression fractures, whereby there isn't this archetypal open book yeah. type fracture. So actually what, what you might be doing is compressing a fracture or compounding a fracture more into an abnormal sort of shape within 
the pelvic ring rather than bringing it restoration yeah. to, to normal anatom- anatomical shape. I guess my question is, is is a pelvic binder in that case making things worse or is it still useful as a label that listen this person's injured their their pelvis please image it or what's what's your thought thought processes around that so it's a really interesting question i'm just trying to make sure i construct the answer appropriately the reason being for anything like this kind of intervention there's clearly no one's going to have 100% accuracy, not me, not anyone. It's just it's just the way it is. Right. And so the question is, what kind of system do you want uh, when you're going to implement intervention? Do you want to over triage? Do you want to under triage? Because you can't be perfect triaging level. Right. So my gut feeling is you always want a little bit over triage. OK, that's why we all have a tendency to want to go to major trauma center just in case. Um, and so there's that issue. I think fundamentally, though, the application or the appropriate application of a pelvic binder, I think, is a really safe step. And I think it comes with very little downsides. There are some downsides that people will talk about, and I'll mention this. Um, In terms of how do you apply the pelvic binder, as long as it's seated around the greater trochanters, and essentially, as long as you apply it and the width of the pelvis of that region where it's applied is roughly symmetrical with the waist above it and the thighs below it, then I think you're okay. You've applied it at an appropriate anatomical tension. I wouldn't necessarily go with the manuals that ask for clicks or anything like that, because that's fundamentally not gonna be the same for every person you see, right? So I would just make sure that it looks appropriate for the person you're dealing with in front of you. So that's the first thing. In your classic open book fracture, yeah, that's the perfect scenario where a pelvic binder would work really well. Yeah, sure, in lateral compression fractures, yes, there's always a risk that you can make it a little bit worse. But fundamentally, I don't think you're going to make it much worse than when the car hit the person or when the person hit the ground, right? And as long as you appropriately fit it, you won't and shouldn't make that any worse. People would argue that, you know, if you do put it on, then there's issues of damage to the skin. You can cause like soft tissue injury, skin ulceration. But I've rarely ever seen that actually manifest. I hear people talk about it all the time, but I've rarely to see it. And I think even if you ask people who have seen it, they would literally say it's probably not more than one a year, if that. But, you know, as long as I've been at King's, I've not seen one. And I think the policy there is that most hospitals have an intra-hospital policy that the binder only stays on for 24 hours maximum. I've seen, and so after that time, it just comes off. I've seen plenty of people try and play with binders in hospital where the binder gets put on pre-hospitally quite rightly. Patient comes in, they're hemodynamically unstable. They think the binder's not doing anything useful and they try and play with it, loosen it, maybe take it off. And I've seen people people become peri-arrest when that immediately happens, right? And I think for that kind of situation, it's just not worth it. If you think someone has a pelvic fracture, you should use it. And you should use pelvic binders and think about them. And I would recommend everyone, even orthopedic surgeons, think about pelvic binders as a hemostatic device. If you think about it then, then you're, you know, kind of the threshold at which you'd use it would be much lower, yeah? We're giving TXA to everyone that has trauma. We don't really think twice about it. We're not waiting to see a pile of blood on the floor before we do. We just give it based on mechanism. And I don't. And I think if you think of pelvic binders in that same sense as a hemostatic agent, you should use it more often. It's definitely not a great 
biomechanical fix for the pelvis, but that's not what it's designed for. Interestingly, biomechanically, it is actually better than most other pelvic devices that we can use except for the definitive surgery bits. So it's better than an external fixator, for example, it's just better. It's better than other clamps and other any interventions people can do. So I would thoroughly have a low threshold to use it. And following, you know, with the faculty guidelines on people with hemodynamic instability, low GCS, alcohol intake, you know, it's all these kind of people that need it on. I did a study with some of the team at London's Air Ambulance when I worked there, and we found that the rate of pelvic injuries that were missed by an advanced pre-hospital care team can even be up to 20%. And that miss rate are actually people who end up needing surgery. So it can be easily missed even when your thresholds are there and your, your acuity is there. So that's why I think using a binder should be kind of low-hanging fruit that you can just pick off and deal with. So Ash, just pivoting slightly and looking at how you assess a pelvis, could you maybe speak to any tips or tricks or indeed just just your thought processes as 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 you come to assess a a pelvic injury or indeed a a, a patient which has been involved in a high mechanism injury yeah so with my uh, pre-hospital pre-hospital hat on i honestly think that history is the most important thing you've got to f- get a really accurate history if the patient can give it to you fine if the patient can't give it to you, you've got to find the bystander that was there at the time. Even if that bystander is in, you know, a police car 30 meters away, you've got to find a mechanism that you go and speak to them yourself and just find out exactly what happened. That will tell you for sure. So that's the first thing. Great history from a patient themselves or bystander. Then there's obviously examination. Examination is really difficult. So look at the physiology and the OBS monitor first, okay? And if you've got with someone with hemodynamic compromise or someone that whose OBS look okay, but they look white as a sheet, yeah, then don't trust the machine. Trust your instincts on what the patient looks like. And if you think they're bleeding and they've got signs of, you know, the hateful eight as people now describing it, any of those signs, then just go for it and examine and look for resting position of the limbs, any of those windswept positions we spoke about, the kind of frog leg position, have a look for lacerations or signs of bruising or any kind of damage around the pelvis. I've seldom ever seen anyone who hasn't had a pelvic injury with an overlying laceration. Yeah. So anyone I've ever seen pre-hospitally or in hospitally that has any kind of laceration over the pelvis is has an underlying pelvic fracture. I've never seen the two exist without, you know, apart from stabbings, obviously, but for blunt force trauma, I've never seen the two exist without each other. The next thing is, yeah, you can palpate the anterior superalex spine. Obviously, don't spring anything, but you can try moving a little bit, feeling for any crepitus or anything like that. Again, it's horrendously difficult, can be very inaccurate to do. If you can, I definitely would try and feel the pubic symphysis, which is much lower than people think, and just try and feel it. And sometimes in those peri-arrest patients uh, where obviously you won't be getting a painful response, but you're able to feel, you can actually feel a gap when it's a big open book. Um, and certainly in surgery, prior to surgery, when before we make an incision, we definitely feel it out. And we can de- you can definitely find a gap that's you know, at least two, three fingers wide. So it's, it's easily palpable. Um, And then beyond then, try and find other factors. So, you know, if you see the bike there, look at the petrol tank, is there a dent in it? See what else is going on. If there's any other um, history that you can get as to what happened, then all of that. And then 
take into account issues around alcohol intake if that's a if that's the story if there's any signs of head injury and just remember that all of those factors should now lower your threshold for a pelvic fracture uh, and if people have got injuries to their abdomen and their legs they'd be lucky if the pelvis somehow was spared that's great advice you know injury above injury below you've got to really um not quality sure but you've got to almost second guess that there is going to be injury and or energy yeah, transfer yeah. to yeah. to the pelvis as well yeah. so ash i mean you're in this fantastic position of a foot in both camps a foot in post care and indeed uh within the emergency department and within surgery could you could you maybe see because you have a foot in both camps could you see or and or speak to some of the common issues you see around pelvic management that's coming into you as a as 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 an orthopedic surgeon and when you're going down to ed is there any commonality of of, of aspects of care that you see are missed or maybe inappropriately judged or yeah could you could you could you speak to that yeah yeah absolutely one of the things i'd want to say definitely for our country is that i think pre-hospital care has evolved and is you know is operating at an incredibly high level and i'm not talking about hems teams i'm talking about paramedics emts who are just working and like all good things that work well they're doing the basics really well okay because there's literally no point in me working in hospital like i was last night or doing yesterday when i did have a pelvic fracture to do there's literally no point in me being there if the if the great work is not done in the field and the great work is being done in the field so i really want to applaud all those uh, people who are doing the strong work out in the field to bring us really well resuscitated patients and i think that's actually helping us to why we're understanding mechanism of injury more seeing newer uh, injury patterns appreciating these newer injury patterns and our understanding of pelvic injuries for all of us is just getting better i think i'm seeing a lot of great things being done so patients having a great history so i i often read even if i don't see them in ed or that day if i pick up patients a few days later i'll read through the pre-hospital care record myself because i know that there's really good history in there as to what happened because actually i need that history so that when it comes to the operating bit of the management, because I, I, it helps me reverse the application of the injury force in order to restore the anatomy of the pelvis. So fundamentally, I really need to know how they got injured because I can use devices to reverse all of that to make the pelvis look like it was meant to look and then go on and fix it. People are not giving massive infusions of crystalloid. That's great. People are using TXA. I've yet to see people coming in without binders. Most of them, I, I can't really think off the top of my head any case. I'm sure there are, but I can't really think of any who are fundamentally have a pelvic fracture that don't already have a binder on. And then when the, and then obviously with the HEMS teams bringing them in, they're doing the appropriate advanced pre-hospital interventions of either uh, rapid sequence induction for clinical care management, transfusion, packing wounds, et cetera, identifying other associated injuries, et cetera. And then all of the pre-hospital care teams, ambulance, ground ambulance and air ambulances are informing the hospital in advance of a code red coming in as a massive transfusion patient. And then in the hospital teams, again, tra trauma care has really become really outstanding, I think, in MTCs and in trauma units, really well-led teams doing the basics right. So I've not got a massive 
there's no thing where I'm seeing a lot of things missed. I'm seeing a lot of things managed generally really well. Um, there's a little nuance here and there where people, as I said to you, some people are worried about the binders and might try to play with the binders and we get these issues very rarely. But I, but I would counsel people to really not mess with the binders in someone who's hemodynamically unstable for 24 hours. Yeah, unless you've got a CT telling you categorically there's no pelvic fracture, no pelvic injury, no pelvic hematoma, then sure, in those patients, you probably don't need it. But anything on CT that's suspicious of a pelvic fracture, just don't mess with the binder in someone who's unstable. And then what we're trying to do in the orthopedic uh, intervention side is we're trying to get these patients, ideally, in terms of our current own standards of care, we're trying to get their definitive fixation done within three days, okay? Because we know they do better in terms of less hospital length of stay, less intensive care length of stay, less respiratory complications, easier nursing care if we do all that sooner rather than later. And in some instances, we're trying to get it done within 36 hours because actually we know that that actually critically can make the difference. So I was just pivoting slightly and looking at... The shift in techniques and indeed shift in culture around interventional radiology mm. for uh, pelvic trauma. Could you could you speak to how practice has changed just around sort of embolization of of yeah. uh, bleeding and indeed uh, occlusive agents and 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 how it's changed the evolution maybe indeed over the past five years or so. So interventional radiology is a really interesting topic. And so a lot of people want to try and simplify pelvic trauma management and go down a pathway where at the end of it, it looks like interventional radiology or surgery. It's not necessarily that divergent. It's really nuanced. And so the key things to establish are first get the diagnosis of your pelvic fracture. And then what you want to do is, okay, does my patient need active intervention now so clearly if they need a transfusion that's running if they need other interventions for other damage other organ damage that's that's also happening so the question is what do they need for their pelvic trauma uh, management binders transfusion etc but when it comes to ir interventional radiology and surgery it's really difficult what i'd probably suggest and most hospitals do have a policy around how it works there is a little bit of culture thing to understand so Getting an interventional radiology team during working hours is considerably easier than getting an interventional radiology team out of hours, even at an MTC, even if there is an on-call rotor. Because none, if you call them in the middle of the night and they're at home, because most of these teams are not resident, it will still take one hour for them to assemble themselves there. And the interventional radiology works really well if you have a arterial bleed from one of the branches, okay? The commonest one that most people quote is the branch of the uh, superior gluteal or the superior gluteal itself, which comes off the internal iliac. And that's the one where interventional radiology can intervene. And they typically do something called selective embolization, where they embolize a named vessel. It's very, it's, it's, not, it's not ideal to do embolization of massive vessels because effectively what you then do is kill off a large area of soft tissue and muscle by cutting off its blood supply. So although it may stop your bleeding, but it'll just create this big anoxic area, which is actually a problem. Uh, and so selective embolization is key. 
So again, in terms of those named vessels for artery, depending on what study you read, that only occurs in about 5 to 10% of patients. So there's not a huge amount of patients that this is going to be useful for. And again, a lot of these patients are bleeding from either their bones or from veins. And if you can get on top of their uh, bleeding by using massive transfusion protocols and doing the basics right, you can actually prevent any of them having to go to surgery or even reach interventional radiology. We probably have to, we haven't had to pack a pelvis at King's definitely for the last couple of years, just because the pre-hospital stuff is getting done so well, the patients are coming in better resuscitated, that's actually easier to pick them up. Interventional radiology, typically we do do, I probably say once a month or once every six weeks, we have one patient that definitely needs interventional radiology. And typically it's more often than not, it's people who have like a splenic injury as well, so they can have that embolize as well as the pelvis. Most of the time, the pelvis itself generally, in the vast majority of patients, sorts itself out just with transfusions and binders. And then we'll get to them later. The In terms of general protocol management and general kind of pathways they most people would say that if you're having someone who's peri-arrest from a bleeding pelvis then they probably just need to go to theater asap and in theater most people would then do something called packing of the pelvis and that's where you make like a lower midline laparotomy or a fan and steel incision which is the uh, horizontal incision in the lower uh, abdomen and then you pack the pelvis with lots of maternity swabs of basically massive swabs and then that's designed to just tampen out the whole area stop the bleeding and that's an interim temporizing measure you need to ideally bring them back to theater there in within 24 or 48 hours you can sometimes do that first and then take them to interventional radiology to any manage any bleeding artery or arterial branch and so that's generally how it's working. You want to find out if it's overall, you want to do the CT, find out if the bleeding's from the bone or from veins or it's from an artery. If it's an artery, it's amenable to interventional radiology. If it's bones and veins, it's usually amenable just to transfusion, splintage with a binder and occasionally surgery. But again, most patients are coming reasonably well resuscitated. So we're having to do that less and less. If you look at international literature, which is what everyone does, and they want to look at systems like... Um, in the in America, etc. The problem there is their policy is slightly different because the pre-hospital care, I would say, is not quite as far along as it is in the UK or even in Australia or mainland Europe. And there a lot of patients are getting still getting lots of crystalloid transfusions. They're coming into hospital under resuscitated. And so the hospital's starting off on a back foot. That's why when you look at the American literature and they've got articles about you know people having tons of people having packing tons of people are having interventional radiology i don't recognize the same world in the uk and the us so you just have to bear in mind why that is happening fundamentally in the uk in our major trauma systems now the mortality rates are decreasing for code red pelvic trauma patients and actually much better than other international rates including from north america ash looking at the future of managing pelvic injuries in a pre-hospital environment can you speak to maybe what you see down the line indeed either from a critical care perspective or from sort of general pre-hospital practice so i think clearly i mean obviously we'll never go miss without mentioning raboa at some point <laughs> so so yeah so um Clearly, there is a spectrum of patients who, so the vast majority can be managed with transfusions, uh, binders brought into hospital. And clearly, 
there is a group of patients who are so close to being peri-arrest or getting into arrest that you need to think about a temporizing intervention that will give them the time to either get from scene to hospital or from the ED into theater and giving them a meaningful time to actually do some interventions. I mean, with that in mind is how Reboa came into play to give you that temporizing time. Um, clearly, the only pre-hospital service in the world running it as a pre-hospital intervention is London's Air Ambulance. And obviously, they've had quite a few successes with it. I'm definitely a proponent for it in the appropriate patient. It obviously has its own risk profile. And so, that, you know, and that is an issue that some people would latch on to. But I think over, you know, overall in your critically injured patient, I think it's a, it's a, it, it's an appropriate intervention to undertake. There's obviously studies into, there's obviously in-hospital studies, a Roboa trial going on at the moment, and obviously the ongoing pre-hospital Roboa a study going on uh, at London, for example. Clearly, what's happening now is when you put the Roboa catheter in, no, I, I'm just kind of semi-assuming everyone knows what Roboa is, but uh, retrograde endovascular balloon occlusion of the aorta, where you put a balloon in backwards through the femoral artery and it, uh, inflate the balloon. It's, it basically lives at the bifurcation of the aorta onto the iliacs and so stops blood flow into the pelvis and the lower extremities. Stops all blood flow, which is not a good thing, but stops the bleeding and but that's why it only buys you time 66 minutes is what most people say based on the studies ideally sooner than that would be ideal you can put the balloon further up and so you can put it higher up the aorta and that can help manage any bleeding from the abdomen abdomen area but obviously that again you've now made a bigger part of the patient's body uh, you've stopped them receiving blood to a larger area which comes with its downsides you can do something called partial Roboa, where you can basically sort of semi-fill the balloon and you can let enough blood go through so that you're kind of perfusing a region without so much blood through without so much blood going through that you're not letting it bleed out. So that's partial occlusive Roboa, and you can measure pressures. And that's what most people are trying to work out. That gives you a bigger temporizing time. The, be, the thing beyond that, I guess, is what people are generally thinking about, whether we do anything to buy people more time, and would that be something along, along the lines of ECMO in trauma patients? Okay, I'm, I'm definitely no expert in any of that, and I would definitely defer that to other people who are much more expert in that to see where we're heading with that. And obviously with that comes cooling the patient as well to just, again, give you more and more time. Okay, but these I think are a we're becoming much more selective and these patient groups are going to hopefully be smaller who need these level of interventions. But I think as with everything that we've talked about so far, if you get the basics right, you'll be affecting and giving benefit to the vast majority of patients and the niche interventions are there for the small group who you can make a fundamental difference, who just need that little bit of time to get from scene to hospital. So as we come into Landash on the conversation, just a couple more questions. One would be around, could you maybe speak to any seminal cases you have seen where sort of prompt treatments of pelvic uh, injuries has, has really been the differentiator between life and death? Yeah, no, Absolutely. I think there's, yeah, I mean, there's quite a few patiently horse-related injuries that come to mind. 
because patients falling off horses and then having huge heavy horses land directly on them absolutely crushes their pelvis much more than a petrol tank ever would at whatever speed and they have quite significant injuries a lot of them i've seen have massive injuries to their rectum for the females have injuries to the vaginal wall and so the contamination issue is very high a lot of them have open pelvic fractures and it's really it's it's really important that those patients are identified so you know as part of your survey be that out of hospital if you see issues around blood near the back passage or blood at the urethral meatus in male or female please make that very clear when you're doing the handover because you can imagine with a binder in place with sheets over the patient everyone can kind of forget about that region while they're busy transfusing someone and not realize the extent and severity and sometimes when these get missed you only end up diagnosing like an open pelvic fracture the following day which is not a great situation to be in so I've seen that on the downside, but I've also seen those injuries picked up really early, which has definitely saved people because we've then been able to take them to the theatre, you know, either do a colostomy with the general surgeons or clean out the area to minimise the contamination issue, minimise the sepsis and actually be able to do some early intervention. And that's been able to then limit how long they stay in the intensive care unit and therefore allow them to kind of make a quicker recovery and then get home quicker. The long-term outcome in terms of getting back to work and doing all of that, most patients do take an age after pelvic fractures. It's not a quick thing. Most people peak at their recovery from pelvic fractures around a year and a half after the injury. It doesn't mean they're in a wheelchair for that long. It doesn't mean they're not at work. It just means that's how long it takes for them to feel roughly back to normal. But most people are on crutches or in a chair for a good few months to begin with. And then it's a slow transition back to normal life and back to work, depending on how manual their job is. As we just finish off, could you maybe speak to any take-home messages for listeners that you'd like to mention? In terms of take-home for pelvic fractures, I think most people do appreciate that it's a massive source of blood loss. And I think the key element here is to recognise that's what it is, and that's what we're all worried about. Orthopaedic surgeons are just the same as ED people. We're all worried in pre-hospital care, uh, you know, providers, we're all the same. We're all worried about blood loss from that, okay? We recognize it by making sure you take an appropriate history from the patient or the bystander, do your clinical exam, but again, have your low threshold. Make sure the binder is used in pretty much everyone that you suspect has a pelvic fracture. Make sure you give a heads up on the blue call to the hospital that you're coming in with this kind of patient, whether they're hemodynamically unstable or not. And then for the hospital teams receiving them, again, don't forget to reassess the patient. Don't forget to look for associated concurrent injuries, either genital or rectal, etc. And don't forget to kind of, again, suspect it, even if you don't think so, actively exclude it. And clearly, most people are going through a CT scanner, so that will just give you an idea of what's going on. And then in terms of surgeons, we're just looking to try and manage these as early as possible to give patients the best opportunity to recover, rehabilitate and get out of hospital back home. Ash, listen, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you very much, Owen. Thanks for having me. Name to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast on the Medics Academy Network.